Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Um, there's a guy by the name of John Gotti. He was the mob boss of the Gambino crime family in New York City. And man, that guy loved the limelight. He, um, he basically transformed a lot of what people understood about mafia from this hidden kind of underground thing to become this celebrity kind of person. And uh, some of you may remember stories on the news about him and seeing him live. He was very flashy. And he went to prison, and his oldest son, known as Junior, John Gotti, uh, served as the leader of that family in his place for about seven or eight years while uh, his dad was in prison. And in 1999, he decided, the son, that he wanted out of the crime life. He wanted out of the mob life. And I watched this documentary on him um, a while ago, and it was really interesting to watch it. And you could see him. He made several trips to the penitentiary where his father was serving in prison. And he would go and he would talk to his father and they would have uh, connections. And he was telling the story leading up to the point where he was going to tell his father that he wanted out of the mafia. He wanted out of the crime life. And every time he would build up his strength, his courage, he would go and he just couldn't do it. He couldn't break away from it. And finally, he uh, builds up the courage, goes and tells his father. His father's very angry, you know, disowns him. And in the documentary, what's so interesting about it is you listen to the junior telling the story, and he talks about the relationships that he had in that group. He describes the relationships that he had within that crime family, and he says what made leaving so hard was not really the risk of his life. The way that he lived, you know, a mobster lived like, I could die tomorrow. It wasn't the fear of losing his life. What made it hard for him to leave was he meant he had to leave what he considered to be his family. He couldn't imagine walking away from the people in that group. And what struck me as I was listening to him to talk about this experience and watching him, I couldn't help but just see the dichotomy there. The way that that group lives, what they go after, what they pursue, their purpose, and what he was experiencing was really, really interesting. And I couldn't imagine, I remember sitting there thinking, I couldn't imagine this guy, John Gotti, Jr., I couldn't imagine him walking up to maybe another mobster and saying, hey man, how was mafia this week? I missed it last week because I was, you know, kind of sick and not there. F because for him, mob or mafia wasn't just this once a week, maybe an hour or two hours gathering where he just kind of checked in and then left and did his own life. It wasn't like that. So it would be really crazy for him just to walk up to somebody and say, oh man, I haven't been to Mafia in a couple of weeks. You know, what's going on with it lately? What's, what's up? Because for him, it was his life. It was his family. It was his connection. Now, obvious differences aside, I don't know if I need to point out the differences between church and the Mafia. I hope that I don't have to do that today. I think you get the point what I'm trying to say. Is that what we want here... I'm talking specifically, not theory, here. What we want God to build in this place, not us build, God to build in this place, is something more than just a weekly meeting. 
What we want God to build in this place is something more than an event that runs on time with excellence. What we want God to build in this place is something more than just a shared space like a movie theater where people come and gather and they leave. We want God to build a real family, a unity that, can be, that cannot be broken. And we've learned so far in our series that real unity, real family unity requires determination. It requires core doctrine. But we're also going to see that it requires divine intervention. We learned early that it requires determination of the believer that you and I have to be people who have patience and humility, forgiveness and love with each other. That we have to determine that we're going to figure it out and we're going to work towards having the unity that God gives us in the Spirit. That that's going to be something we value as people. But it can't just stop with good intentions or good desires. It's also got to be built around good understanding, doctrine. And that's why we taught for the last six weeks, seven weeks on the ones, that there is just one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And last week we learned that there is one God and Father above all, through all, and in all. But we also are going to need some divine intervention. Because what we're doing is not natural. What you have typically in families, you know, blood families that are born, is a natural bonding that um, holds them together. But what we're trying to do here, to let God do in us, is something that's not natural, it's supernatural. To bind together, to bring together a group of people who for other reasons shouldn't be together. That's the testimony, the beauty of the gospel that Paul and Jesus and all these other writers in the New Testament want to convey that God is able to make one out of a lot of different parts that don't belong together. That by the blood of Jesus, it's greater than anything you could ever imagine. And so we need supernatural help. And our text, Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, is going to show us the supernatural help that makes us become one and that supernatural help is God's grace look what he says in verse 7 grace was given to each of us now this is a weird transition he's just in the midst of saying hey there's one Lord there's one faith there's one baptism there's one God and he's hammering all of these doctrines that you and I must singularly believe and then he goes but grace was given to every single one each one personally let me tell you a few things about grace okay and let's see if we can make sense of it one this grace this grace is singular if there's one grace you notice he says in verse seven grace was given now later he's going to talk about the gifts that are given verse 8 verse 9 he's going to talk about gifts and that's plural we're going to see in just a moment what he means by the plurality of that gifts but first i want to start with grace being singular the idea of grace gets cheapened all the time the way we use the word grace the way we think about grace the way that we conceptually understand grace it gets cheapened all the time and what it really means oftentimes people think the word grace means just the ability to overlook some mishaps like you cross me or do something wrong or I slip up and make a mistake and you go, hey, that's okay. Oh, thank you for having a little bit of grace with me. You understand? That's typically how we use the idea of grace, this ability to overlook small mishaps in people. 
But that's not true. That's really not what grace is. That's forbearance, that's patience, that's tolerance. Grace is not just divine allowance from God. Grace is divine intervention, and it's costly, but it's also potent. It changes you. It shapes you. And it comes at an incredible cost to the person who is giving grace. It's unmerited favor. Grace is you getting something at no cost to you, but at great cost to the giver. Let me show you what the grace of Jesus is. It first starts with his pursuit. His pursuit. That's where I want to start. Look in verse 7. It says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. And now Paul's going to explain what he means in verse 9. In saying he, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? Grace starts not with the ascension of Jesus, but with the descension of Jesus. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, existed with God for all eternity before the world ever came to be. And it was in the mind, the will, the plan of God for the Son to take on human flesh and become like us to save us from our fallen state, from our own sinful ways, our selfish ambitions. And Jesus descended to do that. This is his pursuit of us. Before you and I ever looked to the heavens and begged God to save us, Jesus said, I will come. He came for us. He became one of us. He gave up the glory that he had in heaven with his Father and took on human flesh. He took on the experience of being human. Imagine that for a moment. He let himself be tired, be a child. He let himself grow hungry. He understood what it was like to be tempted, to be tested, to be frustrated, to wonder. He let himself experience those things. And he lived this life in direct connection with the Father by faith to perfection. He did that for us. And then he absorbed the experience that we all deserved as sinful beings the excruciating experience of dying because of sin. It wasn't his sin, it was our sin. He died, as the Bible says, a cursed death. He experienced for a moment a separation. That's what death is in sin, a separation from God. He experienced for a moment when he said to his father, why have you forsaken me? It tortured him so much that it made him bleed out of his pores. It made him beg for another way for this to happen. But ultimately, he persevered all the way to the tomb. Lashings, mockings, abandonment, the cross, the spear in the side, his body and his spirit separated, laying dead in a tomb. He went all that way for us. Here's what you got to get from that. There's a lot of pieces, but get this one point today. This is how far he'll go for you. You know, we sort of, we have limits with people, right? How much will you help? Um, someone needs help, someone needs assistance. Maybe the closer they are to you, the farther you'll go. But we sort of have limits with people. Here's the, not just the words, but the demonstration by life, how far he'll go. All the way to the point where his body and soul are separated. Dead in a tomb. Every step 
from his, in his life all the way to the cross was in pursuit of you and I. And it culminates with his power. So Jesus didn't stay dead. Surprise, I ruined the story for you. Because he was righteous. This is why he didn't stay dead. You've got to understand this. When he died in the place of sinners and went into the tomb, he didn't stay dead because of this one reason. When God looked at him, he said, this one is righteous. This one is perfect. He doesn't have to stay dead. He can come back to life and he can live with me for eternity because he's perfect. There is no separation. That's why Jesus didn't stay dead. So when he rose from the dead and lived on earth with a healed, transformed body and then would ascend to the Father, he demonstrated ultimate power over your greatest enemies. Sin and then death. The combination of those two is eternal fate. If you are in sin and then you die, the combination of that is eternal separation from God. Life without him. And Jesus went into death, came back, and said, I've made a way for you. You don't have to stay dead. And when you go into death, you don't have to go there as a sinner. He defeated those things for us. Because he was righteous, he was raised back to life. He defeated these enemies, and those two combined are defeated forever. Now in Christ, you and I can be free from sin and fearless of the grave. Okay, church, listen. This is grace to you singularly but he doesn't just stop there with grace being singular he says it's also there's something plural he says there's gifts now look in verse 7 paul does something interesting here he contrasts the oneness of the doctrine with the individuality of the grace that word but at the beginning of verse 7 is like okay you see the oneness of this doctrine but let me offer you a counterpoint grace is given to every single individual this grace that i just explained comes to every single person who comes in to the body of christ this grace was individual given to each person and to explain this paul turns to an analogy of war so paul wants to explain how you receive this gift of grace using the analogy of war and this might sound strange but he quotes from psalm chapter 68 where he says in verse 8 there for us in front of you when he ascended on high Jesus, when he rose from the dead, lived on earth, and then ascended back to the Father. When he did that, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is Psalm 68. It's a victory psalm that David would use when he was singing um, a, a song of victory in war. Now, in ancient times, when a nation conquered its enemy, the victorious king would then lead back a procession back into the town this is how it happened think um cleveland a few years ago when they won the when they won the nba championship right streets are full of thousands and thousands of people and then the team comes down the main drag and everybody's cheering for them that's what it would have been like for a city when the king was returning victorious and he would have a procession something following him and there were three things that marched behind a victorious king one the prisoners of war who were captured by the enemy, who are now released. They would march behind the warrior, the king. They would be the ones who were released. Now, can you imagine the embrace that they would have with their family members that they had not seen, that they had wondered if they would ever see again? They would march down there. The second thing would be the conquered enemy who would be put on display for full humility to show his submission. So imagine the train. There's the king. 
Then there's the prisoners of war who are released. Then there's the enemy who's captured. He typically would have a hook through his nose being pulled by a string, knowing that he's defeated. The third thing is this. In this procession, there would be wagons, and they would be full of gold and silver, jewelry, all the valuable, precious items from that city that they had, uh, that they had taken. And then, as they were doing that, the king would start handing the gold and the silver to every person in the city. He was wanting to give them a gift. Not just a piece of money, not just to have some, some, some wealth, but he was wanting to give them something to remind them of the victory they have, the enemy that's defeated, the challenge that's been overcome. He says, I don't want you to forget this. And as this was happening, he says, I want you to remember this picture. Paul wants you to have this. He wants you to see this picture, this procession. Are you the prisoner of war, trapped in sin, the enemy holding you? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, to the tomb, and raised back to life, you are now free in him. Stop seeing yourself as a prisoner of war. You're free. He wants you to see the picture of the um, army coming back. He wants you to see the picture of your enemy defeated. And you begin to ask yourself, okay, what personal gift of grace has Jesus given to me? You notice he says there in verse 7, Grace was given to each of us. Now look at this last phrase. According to the measure of Christ's gift. What does Paul mean by that? Why would he say according to the measure? What's he talking about? Does he mean that different people have different amounts of grace? Or different people, some people need a lot, some people... That's not what he's saying. According to the measure means this. To the exact specifications that you need. You get that? That the grace that Jesus brings is not just some theoretical professor talking about forgiveness. It's exactly what you need in your life to overcome the enemy, to be freed from your prison, to see him defeated, and to have the grace given to you. So ask yourself, what personal gift of grace has God given you? What measure, the grace that you needed, what did he give you? What, to do this, I want you to try for a moment to picture your sin. I'm not talking about the action or the words. I'm talking about actually putting a face to it, to see it. Think about the things that you've done that you're embarrassed about, that you would hate for anybody to find out about. Think about the thoughts that you have that you are about yourself or about others that you just wish would never come back. You just want them gone forever. I want you to think about the temptation that is always in front of you that you wish would just go away and never, ever return. Think about the hurt that you have because it may be something that's happened to you or the rage or the anger you feel because of some experience you've gone through. I want you to not just think about it, but see a face. And now imagine it walking past you, completely naked, hooked by a nose, defeated by your king, completely destroyed. In Jesus Christ, that's what you have. Christ is saying, as he walks by you with your enemy, here's a gift of our victory. Here's grace. I don't want you to ever forget. This is where his grace gets personal, and the gifts get plural. This is why I'm saying it's plural. Christ's gifts to each of us from his victory is to be part of his body. You see, he says, I want you to be part of this victory. I want you to share in it. 
And every one of us come from different experiences, different temptations, different challenges, different things we've done. We've come into this body needing grace and receiving grace. And our unity then is built by our uniqueness in this body. By all the ways that God's grace has come to us. And he wants you to understand that. The way grace has changed you is the way grace has prepared you to serve in the body of Jesus Christ. The way grace changes you, the way that it prepares you. When you receive grace, it was measured perfectly for you to free you from your sin and to prepare you for your service. Okay? So what should you do about that? How do you find out where you've been gifted to serve? How do you find out how this grace changes you? The first thing I'd tell you to do is to avoid the snare of compare. Don't look at other people and what they do or the gifts they have or the things that they bring to the body. Don't do that. Comparison robs you of the very way that you were designed and placed into the body to serve. So you've got to start there. Don't look at other people. Number two, use what you have. Start where you are. Look in to yourself. See where you find yourself drawn to and pulled to to serve. If you had nothing to do, where would you want to serve? Where do you want to give? Look outward. Where are the things that you see that need to be done? Where are the opportunities to serve? What things do you feel drawn to, to give yourself to, to commit to? Look in, look out, but also look up. Ask God. God, where do you want me to serve? How have you healed me through your grace? How can I bring that sort of love to people who might need it the way that I needed it? Ask people in your life who have some ability to speak into your life, some authority. Ask your elders. Ask some mentors. What do you see in me? How can I serve? If you start doing these things, you'll see God's grace pouring more and more into your life because he wants to flow through you, not just to you. Grace was never, you were never meant to be a cul-de-sac of grace. You were meant to be a conduit of grace. And he wants to use you in that way. The grace is singular, the gifts are plural. Let me finish with this. The goal is global. Why does Jesus really want to do all this? What's he trying to accomplish? See, sometimes we get such a small picture of church, such a small image of Christianity, of our own life, of faith. We sometimes minimize it all the way down to Christianity is really just about me escaping damnation and hopefully getting to heaven. That is just that. So I've got to hang on to certain behaviors, practice a few rituals to make God happy, and if I hang on to the end of my life and stay above the cutoff line, I hope I make it. We've minimized it so much. The goal is much bigger than that. What's Jesus trying to accomplish? Let me tell you this. The very same thing he accomplished when he lived on this earth. Picture Jesus on this earth. You've read the Gospels before. Sick people, he cared for them. Poor people, he went to them. Hurting people, he spent time with them. Marginalized people. Outcasts, he went to them. The people that the society would look at and say, "Ah, lost cause, no chance, forget about it. He would move out to them. He would care for them. Lonely people, he brought good news to. He declared the glory of his Father to the whole watching world through his deeds and his words so that people would know the Father's glory and the Father's love is all they need. That's what he did. So what is he trying to do now? The very same thing. Exact same 
thing in the body of Jesus Christ. He still wants that to happen. God's goal is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Write this verse down. Habakkuk 2.14 says that God wants to fill the entire earth with the knowledge. He wants people to know of his grand glory. That's it. Because if you get that God is weightier, more important, more significant, the most important thing, when you finally get that, the rest of your world comes into alignment. See, everything you're trying to do in your life is figure out what's most important. You're constantly making decisions based upon internal priorities, internal value system, internal significance. What is most important? That's what you're trying to do. And when you finally align that God is most glorious, every other piece falls in line. The relationship you're trying to fix or have, the job or career that you want, the children you're trying to raise, the retirement you're trying to save for, the money you have, all of that starts to make sense. Then you say, okay, I've got purpose in this life. I don't need to be everything, but I need to be something. And I don't need to do everything, but I need to contribute to something here in the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ gives us grace so that we can have the gifts to serve people in our world that they might know the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. You and I are the hands and the feet of Jesus. And you and I will become that when his hands and his feet, the ones that were pierced for us, become real to us. When you realize it was his feet that walked the path for you, his hands that were nailed to the cross for you, you'll naturally want to become the very hands, the very feet of Jesus that walk out to a hurting and lost world to tell them the good news of Jesus and serve them and care for them. You see, when we become that kind of congregation, that kind of people, that kind of church, unity will be natural, not forced. Let's let God build that for us. Let's be the people who receive Jesus so that he can build that for us. If you need to receive him, we're going to stand and sing this song today, and we'll help you do that. Let's sing. Please stand.